Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited um, that we get to continue this series called The Bible for Grown-Ups. This series uh, allows me to kind of operate in a different kind of teaching mode than I normally do on Sunday mornings, get to be a little bit more um, academic. Um, But the desire for this series isn't just to be an academic or intellectual conversation. The desire of this series is that um, who you are, no matter who you are, you would gain a little bit more greater confidence, a little bit more greater clarity around the Bible. You see, growing up, for many of us, we were told the Bible stories, but most of us were never told the story of the Bible. And that what we started with last week was the simple point that Jesus did not write the Bible, that he is not the one who penned the letters. In fact, he wrote none of the letters in the New Testament scriptures, but Jesus is the reason we have the Bible. And that the story of the Bible does not start at the beginning. It starts in the middle with an empty tomb. As Andy Stanley says that nobody expected to find nobody. And that simple moment, that powerful event of the disciples arriving at a tomb to find that the tomb was empty changed everything. That people who had given up, that no one was standing outside on Sunday morning with a selfie stick ready to take the picture of Jesus walking out. They had given up because they thought that the movement that Jesus was starting had stopped. And that in the aftermath of Jesus coming back from the dead, people who had walked away from careers, people who had walked away from their families, from their past religious beliefs, they went out and transformed the world. And we take for granted 2,000 years ago that it just happened. But in reality, it should have never happened. A fringe group on the outskirts of the Roman Empire should have never broke through and spread its message in a culture that was largely kind of antagonistic towards its belief. The Jewish fishermen turned preachers should have never been able to captivate and grab hold of audiences. People whose lives were lost and families were lost because they held beliefs in Jesus, it should have never continued to spread, and yet it did for 300 years. The letters written by different apostles and followers of Jesus were circulated amongst these secret house churches. And that in the aftermath of the Edict of Milan, when Constantine um, legalizes Christianity, then for the first time in the history of Christianity, people come out of the woodwork with these sacred scriptures that they had preserved, and they were bound in what we now call the Bible. And that to start and to understand the Bible, you don't start at the beginning, you start in the middle and realizing that Jesus is the reason we have the Bible in the first place. And that his, his life and his resurrection is ultimately what birthed the Bible that many of us have in our homes or have on our phones. But what I want to do today is, as we continue the series for the Bibles for Grown Up, is I actually want to take us to a passage that um, oftentimes serves as a barrier for those who are struggling with the Christian faith and serves as a barrier for those who have the Christian faith speaking up. My undergrad was in the life sciences. Um, I spent a lot of time studying biochemistry. And um, that threw me into a culture of undergrad that was really interesting. I had professors who loved standing up every single week trying to undercut anybody in the room who had faith. And that I became a Christian halfway through my college experience, and I had um, professors who were adamantly opposed to any concept of God, and then like my Biochem 2 professor, um, who I met with regularly just to talk about faith, because he was so deeply committed to Jesus, and yet simultaneously understood the implications 
and, and believed that science was a discipline that was effective. And that for many of us, especially as I've kind of grown in my faith, that I bump into people and that uh, some of us aren't as confident as we could be around our faith because of this concern around the passage we're going to look at. While simultaneously, some of us have said to me uh, throughout my Christian journey that the reason they can't step into the Christian faith is because of science. And that oftentimes, uh, when it comes to the Bible, that science is used in interchange for the book of Genesis. And while we don't have time to fully cover the book of Genesis, my goal today is to take a look at just a few verses in the book of Genesis. And hopefully out of us engaging with those few passages, you'll find that science doesn't have to be a barrier. Genesis doesn't have to be a barrier to faith. It can actually be a bridge to a deeper faith. That whether... uh, sitting in a college classroom or having a roommate or later in your adult years, you started wrestling with the idea of how does this universe come into existence or whether you're someone who sits in their office and a little um, unsure of how to kind of speak about what you do on Sundays because you're concerned that people are going to say, well, what about science? And that um, hopefully we kind of walk away this morning with a little bit greater confidence because the answers, the questions that people ask are legitimate questions. And they deserve more than just simply the Bible says kind of answers, or you need to believe more, right? Um, So what I want to do today is without boring you and us making sure we get out of here fast, I want to look at this passage here, Genesis 1, verse 1. Maybe arguably some of the most controversial words in scripture because of the way it divides instantly the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of the God was hovering above the waters. Now this passage is um, one of those that for many people they'll, they'll point to and say, look, I don't, I can't, this is a non-starter for me to have a conversation about faith. Um, I remember sitting on an airplane one time back when people flew, and um, there was a, a professor from a, a prestigious South Korean uh, medical university, and we're sitting there, we're sitting beside each other, and we start talking, and it turned to faith because people, you know, naturally, eventually at some point will say, well, what do you do? Which is always a fun question for me because um, I might as well say, I, I kill rabbits and bury their bodies but leave their heads hanging on my fence post because of the reaction that I get sometimes. Um, but I'm sitting there and he's like, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a pastor. And it's either going to be, uh, I'm going to drink and pretend like I have some work to do, or it's oh my goodness, I've wanted to have these conversations, but I've had nobody to have these conversations with. And this was one of those guys who wanted to have a conversation around faith and science and some of the deeper questions of life. And we had an amazing two-hour conversation as we wrestled through, but a lot of his beginning struggles was in the beginning, God. Because he says, look, I look at the world and I look at science and how I've been trained and and it's just a non-starter for me. But you have to realize that the context, so the The Jewish faith is the faith that gives us Jesus. You see, there were two central promises in the the Jewish scriptures. There was the promised land, and there was the coming of the promised one. The promised land was fulfilled in the nation of Israel, in the land of Israel. And the promised one was a promise that they continued to wait on. And the further and further you get in the Jewish scriptures, the more the promised one becomes the most prominent piece 
And so Jesus arrives as the fulfillment of that promised one that God told them a long time ago would come to restore their relationship and to give them peace and joy and hope. And so Jesus steps on the scene and he comes back to life and his um, messengers, his followers, men and women begin to spread around the world telling people, but as they go into the world, they move out of the Jewish bubble they were in where this passage was just an accepted means and they moved into a world that saw the world vastly different than how Jewish boys and girls were taught up to see the world. They were stepping into a Roman society that had been influenced by Greek thinking. And there were two predominant um, kind of worldviews they would bump into as they begin to spread Christianity. The first was that the reason the world existed was because multiple gods created it. Um, I'm sure that many of you uh, through this pandemic have picked up the Epic of Gilgamesh and other um, ancient stories from cultures that are long passed away. But if you're one of those people and you've spent time reading Babylonian epics or other kind of Semitic stories around the creation of the world, you'll, you'll know very quickly that the ancient world explained the world we lived in through the presence of oftentimes malevolent, malevolent or indifferent gods, that the world existed because gods got in a fight, or the world existed like um, the Babylonian epic because the gods needed a slave. Marduk wanted, wanted slaves to serve him, so he created mankind for that purpose. And so as they moved into the world, bumping up against the Greek and Roman mythologies, bumping up against the Babylonian stories of creation and other ancient stories of creation, they were constantly bumping up against the idea that gods that were indifferent to them, who were a lot like them, had created the world. The other thing they would bump up against came out of Aristotle's kind of reflections in his uh, physics writings. Aristotle um, wanted to, to remove God from the storyline of creation. So Arist Aristotle uh, came to this logical conclusion. Something doesn't come from nothing. So, Logically, there must have always been a something. And so Aristotle's kind of the intellectual thought of the day, scientific thought of the day, is that the universe had always existed because something never came from nothing. And yet, as the Christians move into that culture, speaking, teaching, proclaiming, and pointing out this message of hope, they were saying, no, no, you need to understand the God who came to redeem us is also the God who created us. And they begin to tell them this story of in the beginning, God. You see, so much of what drove the early church in its articulation around faith in the beginning was not the questions that you and I often bring to the text. We bring questions of how. But the ancients didn't bring questions of how. How wasn't something they were interested in yet. They were interested in the deeper questions of the who and the why. And it's not like there's not an emphasis on the how. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Um, when I took Hebrew um, in order to be able to study this kind of in the original context and language, um, our professor, our Hebrew professor, actually, um, our, one of our first assignments was to memorize uh, the beginning of the book of Genesis. And I remember having to memorize this entire passage. And this specific section was the one that was always fascinating for me as a scientist um, because of my undergrad. Um, this is tohu vavohu, which is the, the Hebrew words for formless and void or emptiness or nothingness. And that Genesis puts forth at the very beginning 
this radical notion that the universe was a something created out of the nothing. And then around 1927, there was a Belgian priest who for the first time in the scientific community suggested this idea that something came from nothing. And initially, that theory, that, that hypothesis was pushed back on because they were concerned that that notion would give credence to the Christian and Jewish creation myths. But that theory would eventually become known as the Big Bang Theory, which is the, wild, wildly, the widely accepted kind of scientific explanation for the universe. At some point, at some point, nothingness in an amazing trillionth of a trillionth of a second became a something that we call the universe. And so it's not that Genesis is indifferent or, or wrong in the how. It's just that Genesis wasn't focused on the how because there was a more important but harder question that had to be answered. And So let me illustrate it. So this week is um, my birthday. And my daughter has been having conversations with me um, because if you spent time with my daughter, you know that she's very passionate about celebrations. This morning, um, she's far more thoughtful than I am. Uh, Jenny woke up and she had stuff that she'd been working on all week um, that was thoughtful and like sweet and creative. And she made a little box of like coupons that Jenny can cash out through the week. And, um, and so, you know, she's like, already talking about my birthday, which is later in the week. And she's like, Dad, uh, uh, what kind of cake do you want? And it's like, of course, Funfetti, because that's what all grown adults want to eat is Funfetti cake, because Funfetti cake is a gift from God. And so, um, you know, I'm like, Funfetti cake. And she said, okay, Dad, do you want cupcakes or do you want cakes? And specifically, she said, do you want it in this mold or a cupcake mold? And so um, this week, I'm going to get a birthday cake shaped like a unicorn with internal goodness of the Funfetti. Now, what I think is really interesting is that um, in some ways, this captures the essence of what Moses was trying to accomplish in the book of Genesis. Because if you walked up to this cake later in the week, and I'm not around, and more importantly, my daughter's not around, you would see this cake. And maybe you would evaluate this cake, you would analyze this cake, and you might be able to determine based on chemical reactions and the compositions and mass spectrometry, you may be able to kind of figure out the chemical composition of this cake. And out of that, you may be able to deduce even how that chemical composition came into being with the flour and the eggs and those wonderful sprinkles that just happened to melt under the goodness of the warmth of the oven, right? Like, you may be able to figure all of that out, but... No analysis of how a cake is made can tell you why it was made. All the scientific analysis of this unicorn funfetti cup, uh, large cake that I'm going to get this week, can tell you why this cake was made. You wouldn't walk away from it and say, oh, it's a birthday cake. You especially wouldn't walk away from it and say, oh, this is clearly a birthday cake for a grown man, right? And so no analysis of the cake can tell you why it's made. The only way you can get the answer to why the cake was made, is that you would have to talk to the cake maker and the cake maker would have to reveal why. You see, how is something that you can arrive at eventually? You may miss it over the journey, right? Science has missed hows before. There was points in scientific thought where the earth was the center of the universe and then we realized the sun is the center of the solar system. Uh, early in, um, actually, you can go back and find this on the internet, but initially the thought was among scientists, about a hundred years ago in fact, that the first planet of the solar system was not Mercury, it was the planet Vulcan. 
They were convinced that the planet Vulcan was the first planet in our solar system, but because of its proximity and closeness to the sun, you couldn't see it. And so a hundred years ago, a little over a hundred years ago, scientists were looking for what they just knew was there, planet Vulcan. And now obviously all of us know that planet Vulcan is not a real planet, but it is a planet that um, maybe some of you, I think Star Trek fans will be able to appreciate, but that only came out of this initial assumption that there must be a Vulcan because of what science had predicted. So how is the easier question? The why question is the more important one. And that's the focus of Genesis. The why and the who was the the question the early church was seeking to answer as they were going into the world because ultimately an analysis of cake doesn't answer the question of why unless the cake maker reveals why. And Genesis 1 is the creator revealing why and who made the creation in the first place. Now, the reason this is so important is because there are implications that come out of the why that have profound, profound impacts on our life. And so um, Alex Rosenberg, who's a professor of philosophy at Duke, wrote a book called The Atheist Guide to Reality. And in the very opening pages of his book, he does us a very helpful service. He says, here's some of the core questions that so many humans um, are answering. Let me give you the quick answer from the atheistic worldview. So the, the why questions, right? Is there a purpose to the universe or to my life? Nope. Is there even meaning in life? Ditto. Nope. Why are you here? Dumb luck. Is there a difference between right and wrong or morality? There's no difference. He goes on to say, what about love? Well, love is just an illusion that arises out of an evolutionary mechanism to make us mate. Love's not real. So, I mean, think about it. I've never heard people call into Delilah and say, can you just, I want to, Delilah, I want to dedicate this song to my special girl called Sweet Jeans, right? And then the song comes on, it's like, girl, oh, I don't really love you, but I got a chemical balance in my head. It makes me want to get those jeans and makes me want to spread. No, not the jeans you're wearing, but the jeans you're carrying in your DNA, your RNA, your mitochondrial DNA, right? Hey, so like that doesn't exist. Like nobody ever would dedicate a love song from an atheistic worldview of like, Man, I just did the analysis, and your 23 and me looks like it'll match up with me, and that 23 and me need to get together so we can produce some offspring so we can continue to propagate who we are. Like, I doubt none of us this, this day are sending an atheistic worldview implication why Mother's Day card, right? Hey, I want to thank you, maternal unit, first of all, for contributing 50% of your DNA and sustaining me and nurturing me until I get to the age of passing on the genes that you gave me. Job well done. Hope you enjoy the rest of your meaningless life. Right, like none of us would ever send a Mother's Day card like that. In fact, this week, what's happened as we've witnessed things in our social media feeds is that we've cried out for justice. That we've seen injustice done that that affects us at the core of our being. Where a kid for no reason at all has his life taken. And and you have to recognize that, that 
that the frame of justice does not arise out of the atheistic worldview. I mean, let's just be really candid. This whole stay-at-home order, if you were being a rational, cold, calculating, implicational atheist, the stay-at-home order is in a direct opposition to evolution. Because if someone cannot survive, well, evolution's about the survival of the fittest. We don't need to stay at home. Let evolution do its work and take out the weak. Now, no one in their right mind has gotten up on a platform and said that. But it is the implications of a worldview devoid of God. The one that speaks to a world that does not have a why. That speaks to a world that does not have a purpose. And that does not have a value. Now, I'm not saying that any of you who would maybe subscribe to that worldview is thinking those thoughts privately. I'm not saying that any of you with that worldview thinks that there are people who should not live. But history does show us that people with that worldview, when they live in a a genuine disregard for the implications of how people would perceive it, produce death and give you a different world than the world that we currently live in. If you look at last century, just for an example, whether it was Hitler whose ideology was shaped out of some of Nietzsche's dark atheistic frames, whether it was Marx and how he would influence Stalin and Lenin and General Mao or Pol Pot, that when you add up those numbers, it's close to 100 million people lost their lives out of an atheistic worldview. Why? Because the the people, the leaders of those countries did not believe there was inherent worth or value in human beings. They approached the world from a different frame. Most of us don't. And the reason why is because we are all hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. None of us live very well consistently from our theological belief system. Whether you have a belief in a God or not. In fact, um, one of arguably what has been said, um, Germany's greatest thinker and actual leading atheist, Ergen Abermas, um, says this, Um, He says, universalistic egalitarianism, that's just a fancy word that means everyone's equal. From which sprang the ideals of freedom, collective life and solidarity, the autonomous conduct of life and emancipation, the individual morality of consciousness, human rights, and democracy is the direct legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. Now, here's Habermas who's saying that the reason that we have a world that values equality. The reason we have a world that reacts against racism and injustice, a world that believes that people have an inherent value, not out of what they do, but just simply in that the fact they exist at all. All of that springs from the, the implications of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. Now, this is Habermas's attempt to like explain away what we see in the world. But I think the reason you and I watched a video this week and cried out at the injustice, or the reason you and I want to proclaim love to our mothers today, or the fact that we have this sense of internal right and wrong, doesn't come because 
we inherited a philosophy system. It's actually because it's been stamped inside of us. In fact, um, Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then verse 27, he says this, So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. That the reason you and I have this internal sense that human life is valuable, no matter who that life is. The reason you and I have obeyed the stay-at-home order, the reason you and I would say emphatically that racism is wrong, is because stamped inside of our very soul is an image of God Almighty. And not only is it stamped inside of our soul, it's stamped on the side, inside every single human being that's alive. That all human life is inherently valuable simply because it reflects the image of God. It has an objective value attached to it. It's not subjective. It's not relative. And that the reason these things are so essential is because when it comes to real life, there are implications to the world that your world exists and the worldview that you view your world through. And that when you and I look at the world, we view it through a certain frame. There's the Genesis 1 frame that tells me that there is a creator who didn't just create the world, who didn't just stamp his image on us, but that there's a creator whose image is stamped on us that was broken, that was caused a spiritual disconnection, who pursued and chased after us, who went after us, who stepped into earth and died on a cross so that we could be with him in heaven. That the implications of that worldview changes the way you view your own world. And that ultimately what arises out of the other worldview is hopelessness and despair. That you're never going to find someone coming out of that frame who's going to tell you your life has purpose and meaning and value inherent or intrinsic. It's only, it's only what you do with it. And when you die, it's just evolution doing what evolution is doing. I read a, an article in the New York Times a few weeks ago and it, with the simple question, does this pandemic have a purpose? And the answer was no. The virus is just trying to do what you and I try to do. We just try to propagate our genes to the next generation. And that let's not wage war on it. Let's not paint it in moralistic terms that the disease and death are features of this system, not bugs in the system. And yet, I would argue that inside of your soul and mine, we cry out against death and disease there's something that recognizes it's, it's a darkness and it's wrong. Death is the most common experience humans have. It's like breathing or eating. And yet we don't recoil at it the way, we don't recoil any of them the way we recoil at death. Never walked away from a funeral thinking that was normal or that was okay. But I walk away from a meal every time thinking that was perfect. And it's because death and disease are bugs in this system. They're not the features. But if your worldview doesn't have Genesis 1 attached, it's really hard to see it that way. Now, I know what you're thinking, perhaps, that maybe you're saying, okay, like, all right, I, I get philosophically, you're coming from that angle, and so, you know, you're boxing me in. That's not fair. But what about the Crusades? What about, what about the racism that's been propagated using Christian scriptures? 
What about the Facebook group for the guys who killed that poor kid? Saying they're God-fearing. What about that, Chris? And I would say that's very valid. But there's a fundamental difference between the logical implications of a worldview and actions that are inconsistent with a worldview. And so, it is incons- the Crusades were inconsistent with Christian theology. Racism is inconsistent with Christian theology. So how do I know that? Whenever you look at human history, what do you see? Whether it's in the Crusades or whether it's in racism um, or slavery, is that there's always Christian voices on the other side pointing out the logical inconsistencies of those who claim to use the Bible. Why did they claim to use the Bible? It's because people will grab and steal and manipulate anything that they feel like has cultural power to justify their position. And because the Bible has been at the center of authority in Western civilization for thousands of years, that is why the Bible has been frequently used to justify people's actions. But anyone who reads the Bible and processes it through will will find, or studies history, will find that there are, are, are oftentimes Christians on the other side pointing out the logical inconsistencies. The the abolitionist movement that eradicated slavery, first in England and then in the U.S., was led by Christians. Christians. One of my heroes was a man named William Wilberforce who led the fight for abolition in England. And his position was his Christian views because he would look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. He would look at the letter to Philemon in the New Testament, which Paul systematically deconstructs at the very philosophical level, the idea of slavery. And I think that this is a valid question, but the question I would ask back to you, actually, when I was starting college, I remember um, getting food poisoning from an egg that I ate. And for about a solid year and a half, I refused to eat eggs. Because I had determined that if that one egg was bad, all other eggs in the world were bad too. And I missed out on omelets. I missed out on really good sandwiches. I missed out on really good food because I had decided that eggs were bad. When in reality, it was just that one egg that was inconsistent with what an egg actually does when you cook it. And that the question around the Crusades, the question around um, the way people have used the Bible in the past to justify their horrible arguments is a very valid concern. But ultimately, it's not logically consistent with the Christian faith. It's a bad egg. But it doesn't mean all eggs are bad. And that for some of you, maybe today, you, you at some point in your life, you bumped up against a God that you thought was no longer worth believing in. Or you bumped up against a view of God that you thought was just not even worth your time and you walked away from it. And I would argue that probably for many of you, that was the best first decision you ever made. And that you walked away from a God not reflected in Genesis 1, not reflected in Jesus and his, the way that he engaged and loved and served and talked with power and brought healing and transformation to people's lives. It's not the God who birthed the church, who was known for hundreds of years in the midst of persecution for being people who chose to love and serve, even in the midst of people lashing out. 
It's not a God who has ever stood on the side and, and said yes to people who've used his words and distorted his teachings to justify their evil and vile acts. But I would argue that the part of you that recoils at the injustice, the part of you that recoils at the way those words have been distorted, is actually the part of you that's crying out for the God who created you. And that that God is as close today as he was that day when he walked out of the tomb. And that his desire is that through him that you can be reconciled, that that spiritual disconnect can be reconnected, and that you can find hope and meaning and purpose and joy and peace in life. He's still a God who's giving those things today. And they can be yours today. And that maybe you have some questions. There are things I don't have time to jump into that I would love to process with you. Whether it's a Zoom call or, or an email or a phone call. But I would encourage you to, to reach out and connect. My email is chris at encounterchurch.com. And that your, your questions are valid. And it doesn't mean that you and I will agree on the answers. But that there is an answer that's logically consistent with the Christian faith and that simultaneously points and draws you to a place where I believe peace and joy and life can flow. And I'd love to have that conversation with you. And for those who have been leaning in today and you come out of that Christian faith, that, that you would be a little bit more confident in what you say and how you speak up, that you don't need to fear science. It doesn't have to be a barrier to, to faith, but it can actually be a bridge to deeper faith. I love that I was educated in the life sciences because I have a relationship with both the architect of the universe and can appreciate his blueprints too. It hasn't weakened my faith. It's deepened my faith. Because at the end of the day, Genesis 1 tells us that the God who created it, who created everything that we see, who sparked the universe into existence in a way that the scientists have called the Big Bang Theory, didn't just create it and walk away from it, but that he stamped on you and me a desire to know him and to live lives of purpose and hope, and he made a way for us to be reconnected. And so no matter who you are, the Bible for grown-ups is a faith and a word and a book that doesn't cause you to shrink away from faith, but actually can cause you to lean into it.